look at life and see some of the difficulties that we experience and how do we understand where meaning comes from? It's a serious question. And uh, last week we kind of concluded that um, we live life so fast that we don't take time to like stop and actually really consider what the meaning of life is. Because you've got tomorrow's work and you've got bills to pay and you've got deadlines and you've got tasks. And we just, we run the rat race so quickly that we never really have the time to learn and ponder the meaning of life because we're so busy. The truth is you can either learn from observation, kind of looking to see what you see around you, or you can learn from personal experience. And as Solomon ponders this question about how do we find meaning in life, he turns from the realm of observation in nature that we looked at last week to now looking at personal experience. And so he's going to, as a wise man, do everything he can to experience life and see where uh, his experience takes him. And so we have to deal with an issue that we think is really new. We think we're so smart. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about it. C.S. Lewis says every generation thinks that they've discovered everything that's important and that everyone that lived before them were completely ignorant. He calls that chronological snobbery, that we, we are so snobbish that we think we get it right, and then we sit there and go, how did they build the pyramids? How did they move those big rocks without machinery? They're, people who came before you are a lot smarter than you typically give them credit for. And so in order for us to kind of understand, we have a, um, a current cultural experience that we have to kind of wrestle with, and we begin by uh, kind of saying, how do you say hello to the experience economy? Have you heard that phrase? The experience economy. <clears throat> that is exactly where we live. That is today. Now, um, just given the average age here in the, um, in the building, um, most of you probably did not grow up on a farm. Like, uh, probably less than 10% of you. But, as we think about the economy and how our economy has been driven, historically, that's where we've come from. We came from a very agrarian or farm-based economy. We moved very quickly, and Northside knows this well, from an agrarian economy into an industrial economy. As a matter of fact, there's an old abandoned mill right across the street from our church. So it was industry, and it was textiles, and we moved from an industry-based economy into a service-based economy. And in 1998, a business researcher coined the phrase, transitioning from a service economy to an experience economy. We want you to have an experience with Crest Toothpaste. We want you to have an experience with Wells Fargo Bank. We want you to have an experience with Disney World. I mean, think about it. Um, I don't understand why I pay so much money to hop in a, a boat that's not really a boat, it's on a track, with a bunch of robots from the 1960s singing It's a Small World After All. That is not worth $150, right? Okay? So what in the world is going on? You're paying for the experience. What, what's their title? The happiest place on earth? Until you get the bill, that's for sure. Um, it's the experience economy. So the idea is in business now, the idea is not just to have an exchange of goods for a product, but for you to have an experience that is memorable. As a matter of fact, when, we, when, uh, when you are thinking about buying a birthday present for someone, some of you are just like straight up vanilla, boring, here's a gift card. Um, like here is the most thoughtless gift that I could possibly give you, or, or in, in my case, everything that I've ever bought for my wife has been returned because it was not the right size or I would never ever wear that, 
Um, I have terrible, terrible history. So um, a gift card for me is actually a pretty thoughtful gift. Um, but nowadays you find, you know, uh, somebody hits a milestone, like um, a, a 15th anniversary or their 50th birthday. You, what do you give someone for an important anniversary? A golden watch? No, now you drive a race car or you get to ride in a fighter jet. You get an experience. You go on a cruise or you, have, you go to a, a, a comedy routine. There's an experience. And so the idea is that the memory itself becomes the product. So you're not just paying for the product, you're paying for the experience. We think that this is new. The, the, the phrase experience economy coined in 1998. Yet as we'll see, um, Solomon was all about the experience economy before Anybody ever coined the term? So I want you to look with me at verses 12 through 18 as we kind of uh, look and see what Solomon has to say. He says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to seek and explore through wisdom all that is done under the heavens. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen that all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. He was really good at humility, too. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, and I learned that this, too, is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow, and his knowledge increases grief increases too. Solomon's establishing his credentials, his street cred, as a wise man. And he says, you know, wisdom really has some significant limitations, but as a wise man trying to figure out the meaning of life, I'm going to explore by experience to see where does meaning truly come from. And so as he begins this uh, exploration of experience, he notices, he, he notes a couple of limitations related to his exploration. First, as a reminder, He uses the phrase under the sun several times, again, even in this passage that we've just read. That is a major key for interpreting what Solomon is trying to say. Uh, Many people read the book of Ecclesiastes and go, man, this is straight out depressing. Like, homeboy needs a Prozac, you know, he needs something kind of straighten him out. This is terrible. Well, what he's talking about when he talks about life under the sun, S-U-N, means life from a completely naturalistic perspective where this world is all that there is and God is kind of ruled out. That's a meaningless life. There's no way. If we are a cosmic accident, there's no way. We have to have the guts to say life is meaningless, nothing really matters. We can't derive meaning from lack of intentionality. So he he deals with this under-the-sun perspective, life on this world's merits apart from God. But then he, he gives us a couple things here that are very important. He gives a very distinct word picture for futility. He says in verse 14, oh, where is it? I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Jeff, you're brave sitting in the front row. Ah, yeah, you know it's coming. All right, so uh, I told you. (laughs) So let's say we get done with the service and we go out the back doors here and Jeff's out there with a net. And we're like, Jeff, bro, what are you doing? He's like, I am, I'm going to catch me the wind. And you're like, man, that net, it's got, the holes are too big. You need like a, you need like a finer net if you want to catch the wind. You're trying to help him out, give him advice. No, you're not going to do that. What are you going to think if Jeff is out there swatting at invisible butterflies trying to catch the wind? 
You're not going to help them. You're not going to give them advice. The, the, the help that you'll provide them is a psych evaluation. You're like, all right, Jeff, stick to the barbecue, man, because uh, catching the wind, I don't think it's your spiritual gift, bro. Just leave it alone. Now, here's the thing, is if we saw somebody out there with a net trying to catch the wind, that's crazy, right? That's crazy. And yet, Solomon is saying that you and I do the exact same thing every day when we take the good things that God has given us and we try to make them God things. God has given good things as a, as a blessing and as a gift. They're not designed to be a replacement for him. And yet we are always trying to take these good things and make them a God thing, trying to replace God. And, and it's just straight up crazy to try to find your satisfaction in life from pleasure, from possessions, from status, or from success. I mean, at this point, this is where you cue the song by the Rolling Stones. I can't get no. Thank you. All right, I'm not the only one to listen to that stuff growing up. I can't get no satisfaction. That's because you're not designed to get satisfaction from anything that is created, but only from the Creator. He says two things about wisdom that are very important in verses 12 through 18. Um, and these, these kind of put a framework on wisdom. It's, it's great to be wise. You would rather... Be wise and be foolish, yes. Yes, you would rather be wise and be foolish, but a couple things about the limitations of wisdom. In verse 15, he uses this, this weird phrase, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The point that he's making is that wisdom cannot change reality. Wisdom cannot change reality. Is your life, are you going to miss out on hardship because you're really wise? You're not. And when he says what is crooked cannot be made straight, crooked is a metaphor for sin to, 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 to twist. Uh, it's the word that we use, the English word we would use is iniquity. Iniquity means a twisting of something that was originally designed to be pure. Um, sin is a twisting of sorts. And so you can see that piece of metal that's been bent by the hurricane, and you can know that's not the way it's supposed to be, but knowing that that's not the way that it's supposed to be doesn't change reality. It's broken. It's twisted. So wisdom is a good thing, it doesn't change reality. But secondly, he says, wisdom can exacerbate the pains of life. Wisdom can actually make life a little bit more painful. And he says, verse 18, for with much wisdom is much sorrow, and his knowledge increases, grief increases. Wow. So we're being encouraged to be wise, but we're told that wisdom doesn't change reality, and wisdom can actually make the pains of life stronger. Why is that so? Because you become, the wiser you become, more aware of all the brokenness that is around us. You see all the stuff that is twisted, all of the stuff that isn't the way God designed it. And so you look at our world, and what do you see? You watch the news, what do you hear? Our world is scarred by suffering. It is overflowing with oppression. It's infected with all kinds of injustice, crawling with crime, traumatized by terrorists, and polluted with impurity. And it's not getting any better. And so being wise doesn't actually provide a solution. It may just break your heart more as you see how far this world is from the good place that God originally intended it to be. Nevertheless, even though we hear his warning that everything is chasing after wind, it's all futile, we try all kinds of creative ways to escape this futility in life, right? We try all kinds of creative ways. But here's the thing. When you try things that aren't going to help you, you're going to end up more broken and more frustrated than you originally started. 
If you're going to put your hope in this thing and it doesn't, it's not a thing that you can put your hope in, you're, you're going to end up bitterly disappointed. And, and, and that's a good thing. Okay, how many of you like to be frustrated and disappointed? Me neither. But I want you to hear where the gospel is hidden in that pain and that frustration. You see, when, when God cursed the world and made it futile, you know, Adam had a job before the fall, but after he sinned, God said, you're going to work the land, it's just not going to be very productive. You're going you're to sow corn and wheat, and it's going to bear thorns and thistles. That doesn't sound real happy. But God cursed the world with futility because he wants us to be frustrated. And in our frustration, not to look at created things for our satisfaction, but rather for our frustration to drive us to the Father who is the only source of full satisfaction. So anytime you're frustrated that your kids don't listen, or that your boss doesn't listen, or that your coworkers don't appreciate the value that you add to the institution, your frustration is, is pointing out where you are vainly and futilely trying to find satisfaction apart from God. And you're supposed to allow that frustration to drive you to the Father because He's the only one that will give you full satisfaction. Have you found that to be true? Absolutely. Every relationship, I don't care how godly your marriage is, every marriage will let you down. Every BFF will let you down. Every political candidate will let you down. Um, the traffic will let you down. Uh, this morning, the power let us down. We got here, we had no power anywhere on the campus. So we're gonna, we don't know what we're going to do. We're, gonna sing, we're all going to sing a cappella this morning. Everything is going to let you down. And so he's, God's trying to design this world so that when you have hardship and you have frustration, you're not looking to created things but to the creator to find your satisfaction. Here's the problem. You guys know human experience as well as I do. God is almost never our first hope. He's usually our last chance, right? I mean, if you can do it on your own, aren't you going to try? Don't you lie in church. If you can do it and not have to depend on God, are you going to try it by yourself? Yes, look what I did. Pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm I'm an American. I'm a self-made man. So he's usually not our first attempt. He's our last hope. So what do we try in God's place? We'll see, because Solomon is about to give us Exhibit A. Exhibit A is that just like Solomon, we pursue the pleasure that is passing. The pleasure that is passing. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. And I said about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. As he is um, kind of exploring this experience economy, he is embarking on a mission of luxurious self-indulgence. Uh, you can cue Robin Leach here in the lifestyles of the rich and famous. He's about to see just what money can buy. And so he starts off in verse 2 by talking about laughter. Hey, everybody loves, everybody loves a good laugh, isn't it? Laughter's good. Medicine, you know, la- laughter, you can turn that frown upside down. And he says, you know what? Laughter's a good thing. It doesn't last. Laughter's a temporary distraction from the pains and difficulties of life. And I just have to ask a question. When it comes to laughter, if laughter is the means to happiness, then why did my 
favorite comedian, Robin Williams, kill himself. So deep and dark in despair. And here's the man that made many people laugh and yet found no happiness in his own life. Laughter's not the answer. So he says, maybe if I just move from the comedy club to the pub and see what wine can do for me, maybe, maybe things will be better. And the Bible's testimony on wine is a little bit different. I mean, um, we, we know Jesus wasn't a Baptist because he turned water into wine. He went to weddings. He had all fun with that. Wine in the Old Testament can be a picture of blessing and festivity and joy, or it can be a sign of really terrible things. And it's all based on how you use it. And so when he talks about wine, we don't need to inject a 19th or 20, 20th century prohibitionist mindset into what the Bible is talking about. That's not their perspective. When he says, I'm going to explore what wine can do, we go, that's a good thing. And he's saying, I'm trying to be guided by my mind. I'm not pursuing drunkenness. I'm just pursuing using God's gifts and using them uh, fully. And so he says, I go with wine, and it turns out to be futile. And then in verses 4 through 8, he goes to this whole list of achievements. He goes, I've tried laughter, um, not lasting. I've tried wine, and it, it, it's, it's, it's futile. So maybe I can achieve some stuff. And he goes through a whole list of things that he achieves. He talks about building houses and vineyards. And as a rich king, he could build lots of houses. Here's the thing that I find interesting. Uh, verses 4 through 8, 29 times he is self-referential. He says, I, me, my. 29 times in verses uh, 4 through 11, I guess it is. And um, he's very self-focused. And so you find out, as you kind of flip through other passages of the Bible, Solomon built a house for God. He built the temple. It took him seven years, everyday labor, to, to build that temple. And you go, wow. Like, I think I'd give up if a building project took seven years, right? That's a long time. Until you find out that he took 13 years to build his own palace. Here's the man that built God's temple. Man, that means he's awesome, right? Except when you consider the fact that he took twice as long to build his own house as he did to build God's. You start to see, hmm, okay, maybe, maybe everything's not what we thought it would have cracked up to be. He goes on to say that he builds gardens and parks. And it's fascinating when you look at the language, actually, the, the, the language that is used, the original language when he talks about uh, building uh, gardens and uh, making sure that he built waterways to nourish them so that they were fruitful and abundant. Uh, there are four words that, are, that he is parroting exactly from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Solomon says, if I can accomplish something, let me build a second Garden of Eden. I, I will build for myself this garden. And the idea is... Um, I'm going to kind of improve upon what God already tried to do. And it didn't work out for him, but I'm Solomon. I'm the wisest guy in the world. So he builds gardens and parks. He, he accumulates for himself servants and stockyards. I find this fascinating. Uh, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, it goes through what Solomon's daily allotment of food was. Okay, you ready for this? 233 cubic feet of flour. All right, anybody know how much flour that is? Like, what's a big recipe for you with flour? Three or four cups? We're talking 233 cubic feet of flour, 466 cubic, cubic feet of meal, 10 oxen, 20 cows, 100 sheep, plus dozens of deer and fowl and elk and other kinds of uh, four-footed beasts every day. Mark Driscoll uh, says that he thinks close to 30,000 people a day could be, could be fed from the king's uh, pantry. And did you hear what they're cooking? Filet mignon every day. 
I mean, there's a lot of steak. I, I ain't never had oxen, um, but I'm down with the 20 cows, you know. Uh, I'll, take, I'll take me a shoulder, you know. I'll take me some, uh, I'll, I'll get some of that. Sheep, deer, um, he's having a wild game night every night. Every night. This is his daily allotment. Whoa. You like those reactions. He, he talks about not just servants and stockyards, but he talks about amassing all of this gold and silver. And the end result is he says that gold, at the end of the day, left him cold didn't do anything for him. He's achieving all this stuff, and he's finding time after time after time, it's futile. He accumulates uh, live singers. He buys the best bands in the land. So he literally has surround sound. He's got choirs all around him. And it says that he, accomp- he uh, uh, accumulated for himself um, sexual pleasure, 700 wives, 300 concubines. All of these achievements, and what does he conclude in verses 9 through 11? Look and see what it says. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles, and this was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile. And again, that phrase, a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The cry of our age is if it feels good, by all means, do it. As a matter of fact, if you don't do what you think feels good, you will repress yourself and you will repress your kids and they will grow up to hate you and they'll be weird and they'll be violent. Don't repress your desires. Yet Solomon says indulging in whatever feels good is dangerous because you will teach your kids to never be satisfied with anything. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so he has jumped onto the highway of hedonism and found that it's unfulfilling. So where can he find meaning in life? In verses 12 through 17, he embarks on a new journey and he says, maybe, 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 if pleasure is passing, maybe I can make something of myself by pursuing a life of wisdom. And like Solomon, we too look to wisdom sometimes for our worth. Maybe I'll be something if I'm just regarded as a wise person. Listen to what verses 12 through 17 say. Then I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man be like who comes after the king? He will do what's already been done. And I realize there is an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool, he walks in darkness. Yet I also know that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, What happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said to myself that this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man, since in the days to come both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise man dies just like the fool? Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. He says, I'm going to pursue a lifestyle of wisdom. And he says, there's some good things about that. Um, wisdom is better than foolishness. That's clear. We don't want to be foolish. We want to be wise. He says, as a matter of fact, wisdom is better for foolishness in the same way that light is better than darkness. Um, If you have small kids around your house and you have ever walked around your house barefoot at night, anybody ever stepped on a Lego barefooted? Sweet Jesus. 
put those toys away. Uh, man, it's like a scalpel. And so there are some advantages to light over darkness, but he says there are, again, some very real limitations. If you're looking for wisdom to be the way that you find your satisfaction in life, you're going to be disappointed. And here's what he says, two things. He says, number one, wisdom will not protect you from death. The wise guy, you know, here's what drives me crazy. You get a guy that eats healthy, drinks water, exercises regularly, and at 48, he's dead with a heart attack. And then you get the guy that smokes and drinks and cusses and chews and doesn't diet, doesn't exercise, and he lives to be 97. Like, where's the sense in that, right? Doesn't, doesn't it make sense that if you make wise choices, you're going to live longer? Now, it's generally true. You live right, you might, you, you, you might be healthier. There's no promise. I mean, you run over by a bus. I mean, there's still stuff that can happen. But you sit there and you go, it just doesn't make sense for the guy that doesn't care, that doesn't give a rip, for him to live to a ripe old age when the guy that's really trying to live life right dies early. But the truth is both the wise and the foolish die and die the same way. It's not like being wise adds years to your life. It could, but it might not. And then he says uh, a second thing, that wisdom will not necessarily promise you a legacy. The wise man might be remembered a little bit longer than the foolish man, but given enough time, and both of them are going to be forgotten. Both of them are going to be forgotten. And so he has looked at pleasure for fulfillment. Is pleasure really good for us? Yeah, pleasure's not bad, but it, it's, it's ultimately unsatisfying when it comes to the meaning of life. Wisdom, wisdom is good too. It has some advantages. Ultimately, it's not satisfying, but there has to be a way that you and I can leave our mark on this world. So in verses 18 through 23, Solomon then begins to explore something that I think is probably the greatest temptation for us too that we share with him. Um, to have the opportunity to pursue pleasure with the bankroll that Solomon had is probably not a real temptation for you. You know, um, you know whatever you can get out of the um, candy machine for 25 cents, that'll be your thing. Solomon had millions to spend on the pursuit of pleasure. Um, you pursue pleasure too, just not to the degree that Solomon did. But in verses 18 through 23, we see a, a temptation for Solomon that is a temptation for us, and it's that we are tempted to worship our work. We're tempted to worship our work. Look at verses 18 through 23. <clears throat> I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This, too, is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a man whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a man who has not worked for it, this, too, is futile and a great wrong. For what does a man get with all his work and all his effort that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest this to is futile. Maybe our work will outlast us. Maybe we can build a monument so that we will be remembered. The Bible says that even if you work hard, doesn't mean that it, you're going to have the promise of wise inheritors. Let's just say, you know, the Bible says a wise man leaves a, um, leaves, leaves a blessing to his children's children. Right? That's the idea of kind of passing down generational wealth. And you think, you know, you're going to have the opportunity to change the destiny of your family forever from here on out 
because you have saved and you have worked hard and you're going to leave something for your kids. Here's the statistic from uh, a national philanthropic organization that 60% of all inherited wealth is completely gone by the time the second generation dies. So um, I'm picking on Jeff again because you're on the front row. Jeff is working hard. He is toiling. It says he's working so hard that his mind doesn't even rest at night. When he's not working, what's he thinking about? Work. He, he is a, a classic workaholic. He is just working hard to get the Benjamins. And he's, he's built up a little nest egg that he wants to give to, to Ryan and to Hannah. The Bible says before, or the Bible doesn't say. Research says that before Ryan and Hannah die, they'll have spent everything that he gave them and won't have a penny to give on to the next generation. Does that surprise you? The vast majority of inherited wealth does not go, you might be thinking multiple generations, but your kids who get it, they ain't thinking about anybody but themselves. And 60% of all inherited wealth is completely gone by the end of the second generation. The truth is, a lot of you work so hard to get the, the good things in life, and then you work so hard, you don't have time to enjoy it. You, know, you buy a boat that sits in the yard. It looks great. You know, like if your grass was a lake, man, you'd be, you'd be in the boat all the time. But you buy this thing. You buy the camper, and then you put it under a wrap, or you store it at a storage facility. You, we're buying all these things, and then we work too hard to enjoy them. Yet we constantly, as Americans, put business first. Oh, sorry, I'm not going to be home for dinner tonight honey. Yeah, yeah, tell, tell the kids, why don't you just put them down and tell them I'll be there tomorrow night. Yeah, oh, hey, uh, that ball game, uh, listen, you know, you got to understand, um, what's happening at work is just really important, and I've got a deadline that I need to meet, so maybe I'll be at next week's ball game. Oh, church? Yeah, that's this Sunday, isn't it? Huh, funny how that happens. Yeah, no, I, I've got some deadlines that I need to meet. And we allow work to be the come that become the thing that we truly worship, and you won't find satisfaction in that either. Is consumerism or materialism truly the path to happiness? Have you found that yet? Or are you one of those people that camped out for iPhone 7, and now that iPhone 10 is out, it's the one time you're actually breaking your tent out again? Because you've got to camp out to get the latest and greatest thing. What's next? I don't know. This will keep you happy for a couple of weeks. And the temptation is, even for us as Christians, we think if something about our life was just different, it would be, we, everything would be better. If I just had a better wife, or a better car, or a better job, or better income, or better kids, or better circumstances, or the corner office, or a better church, if I just had better, 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 everything would be better. So here, here in the wisdom literature, contrast two people. Job, who for most of Job... Job has absolutely nothing. If Job would just have a better wife, get his kids back, get his money back, get his wealth back, everything would be good for Job. So you got Job. Job's got nothing. We think if he just had more, he would be better. And then over here, exhibit B is Solomon. Solomon's got everything. Solomon has everything. He doesn't deny himself a single thing that he wanted. Is Solomon better? No way. I mean, what does he say? Everything is Feudile, it's a chasing after wind. So contrasting Job and Solomon, you feel bad for this guy. You don't feel bad for this guy. He's got it all. But you know, this guy just had some of what this guy has. His life would be better. No, it wouldn't. Solomon had it all. And he was just as unsatisfied with life as anybody. As anybody. The um, issue is not celebrity status or material goods. It's where your heart is at. 
It's where your heart is at. And you're not going to be happy with stuff, stuff, stuff. As a matter of fact, this is such an important issue. We need to hear Jesus' words on this topic. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 20, it says that Jesus told them a parable. A rich man had land that was very productive. And he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and all my goods. And then I'll say to myself, you, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We've been down the, pla- the path of pleasure. We've tried to establish our worth through wisdom. We've even worshipped our work. And Solomon has said, all of these leave you with a fist full of nothing. It's like grasping after wind. And in verses 24 through 26, he comes to a conclusion. And his conclusion as a wise man is this. The solution to the futility of life is a satisfied contentedness in the small, everyday joys that God so graciously gives. It's just learning to enjoy. We keep waiting for the big thing, and we don't realize that every day there are small, little blessings that we're tempted to overlook. Look what he says in verses 24 through 26. There is nothing better for man than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, Because who can, I love this question, who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? Isn't that really the issue? Where are you looking for your satisfaction? Who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the man who is pleasing in his sight, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, that's you and me, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who's pleasing in God's sight. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. What Solomon comes to realize is that being focused on self and what you can accumulate is a loser's game. Part of Solomon's problem was how he always put himself first. I said in uh, uh, 11 verses, 29 times he refers to I, me, and my. I built gardens. I built houses. I built a temple. I accumulated servants. I had lots of concubines. had a bunch of wives. I had all of this. And the point that he's making here is that if you're always waiting for something else, to make you happy, you will always postpone enjoying what God gives. He says, now, now, enjoy the moment-by-moment joys that God gives. Don't wait till later. Don't wait for something big. Don't postpone because you don't know that you will have tomorrow. You don't. You're thinking about what the next project is and you're not enjoying today. And the point is, if you're not happy right now, it doesn't matter how much stuff you accumulate or what experiences you experience. If you're not happy now, you won't be happy with more stuff and more experiences. Learn to be content with what God gives now instead of always driving and grasping like a leech for more. He makes this really mysterious statement in verse 26 about how God treats this person that he's pleased with and how he treats sinners. Now here's a quick question. Which one are you? You a person he's pleased with? No. I mean, who does God say that he's pleased with? There's only one person of which God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It says, whoever this man is that is well pleased, he's got wisdom, he's got knowledge, he's got joy, but for the rest of us under the sun, it's just a matter of gathering and accumulating and then it going to somebody else. 
Who's this one? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying, oh, if you just do the right thing, if you please God, God will be happy with you because you're a good boy and a good girl. You're not a good boy and a good girl. That's not the gospel. The gospel is there's only one that's pleasing in his sight. But by virtue of the gospel, when we have turned from our sin and we have trusted in Christ, there's a beautiful thing that happens. The Bible says we become united with Christ. And God no longer sees us as a miserable sinner. He sees us as attached to his son whom he loves, who is the person who he is pleased with. And he no longer sees our faults and our failures. He sees the perfect work of Christ. That's where we find satisfaction. That by faith, we're united to Christ and God no longer sees our sin. He sees our union with his son that has paid the price for us. The truth is this. God has designed the world to be enjoyed, not to be idolized to be enjoyed, not to be idolized because you cannot find ultimate enjoyment in anything but him. And what breaks my heart is that there are people who grow up in the church that could be here every Sunday that don't understand what that statement means. That there is no true, lasting, deep fulfillment apart from knowing God. And it's not an issue of circle, circle, dot, dot, now I got my Jesus shot. It's an issue of walking with him day to day. We were made to find our enjoyment in him. We were made to find our satisfaction in a creator and not any created thing. And it's not that pleasure is wrong. God wants us to enjoy the life that he's given us. But there's a shift that has to happen in a very fundamental way in your life and in my life. My life. And it's this. We have to see pleasure as a gift from him and not a goal to be pursued. If it's your goal, it is your God. Pleasure must be seen as a gift from Him, and not a goal to be pursued. Isn't that what Solomon is saying? I've tried this, and it didn't satisfy. I ran hard after this, and I never quite caught it. I wanted this, and when I got it, it wasn't everything that I thought it was going to be cracked up to be. Our hearts are restless until we find that the pleasures that we enjoy in life are good and gracious little everyday gifts that God gives us, not the thing that we're supposed to build our life around. So here's my question for you. Are you chasing Christ? Are you chasing wind? That's the question. Pray with me, please.